thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. It is time for the first edition of The Naked Scientist for 2018. Hello, Chris. Good morning. Happy New Year. Same to you. Hope you've had a good break, if at all. Well, I've been trying. (laughs) (laughs) We've got a fascinating story to start off with, and it's amazing. We always talk about the incredible possibilities in commerce of what smartphones can do for us. But this Stanford story is a story about how the mobile phone might yet be used to analyze Uh, the sounds made by mosquitoes. Why is that interesting and important? There are three and a half thousand or more different species of mosquito around the world, but only a handful of them, maybe fewer than 10% of their number, are capable of transmitting diseases like malaria. But collectively, they're very important because there are hundreds of millions of cases of these diseases which are dread and devastating diseases with lethal consequences. Now, the big problem is, although we know this, and this has been known for more than 100 years, Scientists are still trying to work out where the mosquitoes are, in what sorts of densities, and how they move around the painstaking way. That means you deploy an an entomologist, someone who understands how insects work and what they look like, into the field to collect samples and then add them up. Very laborious. We don't have enough manpower or womanpower to do this. So, how do you solve the problem? Q. Manu Prakash, who's a researcher at Stanford University. I spoke to him this week. He published a really good paper in eLife where what they did was to say, well, actually, the microphones in mobile phones are so good these days because they're tuned to pick up voices under all kinds of conditions. And actually, the sound of a mosquito's wings maps onto exactly the same frequency range that the human voice does. Therefore, we should be able to use a mobile phone, and specifically a smartphone, to record the sounds in the environment, wherever a person is, and work out what mosquito is there, because different mosquito species have different wingbeat frequencies. They have like a signature sound that goes with the species. So they've done this very detailed study, and they've created an app so that people all over the world can record their local mosquitoes and send in the sounds of their mosquitoes, and they've published this paper showing it is possible with a mobile phone in remote or even in urban areas to record your mosquito, to analyse the sound via your mobile and their website, and you can then work out what mosquitoes are there. And this is, this is great because it turns the entire world into a citizen scientist capable of informing where these animals are where the diseases that they spread therefore might be going and how effective in some cases, say, um, a municipal programme to control mosquitoes is. So great news and just using a technology that is so ubiquitous. There are more mobile phones on the planet now than humans that it's almost a no-brainer. That is absolutely fascinating. Now you can know who the abusive mosquito is in terms of its species anyway. Chris, I've got a couple here for you from Twitter. Uh, Let me take the first one from Dean. Dean says, please ask Chris, is it true that elephant experience much lower rates of cancer than other animals? And if it is true, why might that be the case? Well, there is this phenomenon which is called Pito's Paradox. And this is named after the person who put this forward, saying, well, 
If you need cells to get cancer, the more cells you have, the more chances of cancer you should have. Therefore, a big animal with millions and millions and millions of times more cells than a tiny organism should have a much greater risk of cancer. But if we look in nature and we look at big animals like elephants and tiny animals like mice, actually, it's the wrong way around. Mice have cancer far more frequently than huge animals like elephants do. So how do we explain this? Well, actually, there was a paper which was also published in the journal eLife, where the mosquito paper was published, about a year or two ago, where this was solved. And what scientists have found is that, yes, as animals get much bigger, they do increase their risk of cancer, but they also tool up their cells to make them better at defending against cancer. And in the case of elephants, they have more copies of genes that repair DNA and prevent cells becoming cancerous, which keeps their DNA in good nick. So no big animals like elephants and whales do not get greater cases of cancer. Uh, smaller animals with a higher metabolic rate doing more damage to their DNA do instead. Covalent says tornadoes are becoming more common in South Africa. Please ask Chris whether science uh, tells us uh, what is the best way to keep as safe as possible when there's an emergency. Well, it's certainly true that with global warming, climate change and so on, there's more energy in the atmosphere. These storms are energy. Therefore, the more energy there is in the atmosphere, the more power there is to feed one of these storms. And so we think that uh, as global temperatures rise, the frequency of storms like tornadoes and hurricanes will increase and the intensity of storms like tornadoes and hurricanes will increase. Now, given that we have that anticipation then, and we know how they do harm and we know how to keep people safe, a lot of this comes down to local governments making provision so that A, people are educated and B, that there are facilities in the first instance to protect people while it's happening, but then in the second instance to make sure that there is a plan for if it has happened, how do we make sure that the consequences are not more severe than they have to be? There's fresh water, there's food, there's shelter, there are adequate medicines, there's a way of cleaning things up afterwards and keeping people safe. Bongani Soweto, good morning. Speak to Chris. What's your question for him? Uh, hi, uh, how are you? Very good, thank you. Good, thanks. Hi, Dr. Chris. Good morning. Uh, quick question. Uh, quick question. I just want to know, recently they said there was an outbreak of listeriosis. Uh, where, does it, where does it originate from and how can we like, prevent it from like, spreading? Thanks. Bye. Good morning. Well, list, listeria uh, is the name of a bacterium called Listeria monocytogenes. And this can cause infections in humans if it gets into the wrong place in our bodies. It uh, can cause meningitis, for example, and is one cause of meningitis in more commonly older people. And also it can cause infections in pregnant women and it can get into babies. The bug actually comes from the environment and it's one example of a bacterium that can undergo what's called cold enrichment. So if you have this in a foodstuff, say in your fridge, and you keep your cheese in the fridge, most microorganisms, when you cool them down, they can't proliferate. They need to grow at warm temperatures and that's why fridges and freezers work because they suppress the metabolism of the bug down below the rate at which uh, it is necessary for it to sustain growth. So the bugs don't proliferate, they don't spoil, the, they don't spoil your food, they don't secrete toxins and they can't infect you. But Listeria grows quite well at four degrees in a fridge. So that's why soft cheeses, which have come out, they're in the milk, these bugs, of the animals that uh, the milk was taken from, they can proliferate at cold temperatures to sometimes potentially threatening levels. And if a person who is vulnerable, such as someone with an immunosuppression disease like HIV 
or an organ transplant recipient or a pregnant lady, if they consume that food stuff or are exposed to it, then there's a chance, it's not a given, but a chance that they may acquire the infection. Luckily, it's uh, reliably sensitive to penicillin, which is relatively cheap and relatively safe and relatively widely available. So diagnosed quickly, we can give drugs to prevent problems from it, but uh, very often we only find out about these problems after they've happened, which is 90% of the problem. Let's go to Stellenbosch. Ryan, good morning and welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, just a quick question for Chris. Uh, he retains an incredible amount of uh, information in his brain. Does he have a photographic memory or does he have a system that he uses to catalogue the information he picks up as he goes through life? Interesting <laughs> to know. Okay, we can generalize it to the brain in general, beyond the fascination with Chris. <laughs> yeah, no, it's called, it's called Google, isn't it? You just tap it into Google. Um, no, in, in the old days, that, that's, uh, I used to, used to have this sort of enormous thirst. People would ask me stuff, and i think, I don't know the answer to that. And uh, rather than just think, I don't know the answer to that, um, or I'll phone up a radio program and ask them, I used to go and look up the answer. And before, in the pre-Google era, when it wasn't easy to just have information at the tips of your fingers, there was a strong motivation to look something up and retain it. Um, and so from a very early age, I used to go and do this and look things up, go to books, go to libraries. And the, the, the fact that you had to invest that time, effort and energy in finding the facts out. And then I would often write things down, write little notes. Um, this, I think, glued it in my mind. And I think the act of writing things down is incredibly important because it translates uh, a visual thought into another kind of modality in your brain and it puts an impression like an engram of that information in your brain not just as a visual entity but also as a motor a movement memory the physical act of writing and it forces you to translate the facts into a form of writing which is on your brain's wavelength you write it in a way that your brain likes to say it or think it or remember it and I think that makes it even more memorable and as a result I sort of accrued all these facts and shoved them in my head um, and of course when you when you talk about the, the, the subject you're passionate about in my case science and medicine you're effectively rehearsing your knowledge aren't you and the more you rehearse something the better you, you get at it now you do forget stuff obviously and, and also science is a moving thing it's a continuously up, get updated and upgraded entity because People are always discovering new things. So it's important to keep revisiting subjects and refreshing knowledge on them. But uh, you, having a good core working knowledge, I think, is 90% of the, the way I got started. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Rob, welcome to the show. Thank you, Steve. Uh, quick question for Chris. Um, billions of tons of rubber um, comes off vehicle tyres every year. Where does this rubber actually end up? Good morning. Uh, the answer is probably part of it ends up in your lungs. A lot of it ends up stuck to the road. A lot more goes into rivers and streams and ends up being washed into the sea. Uh, you're quite right. There are billions of vehicles on the roads and there are billions of tonnes of rubber being worn off of those tyres because as the tyre goes around, because it's a bit flatter on the bottom where the tyre's in contact with the road, then the tyre has to change shape as it goes round and that causes it to break apart little bits and shed bits of rubber. Also, as you accelerate away or put the brakes on and change the speed and direction of your car, for instance when you're turning, the rubber is applying a force to the road and as it does so, it's rubbing a bit of itself off on the road. So it's shedding 
millions of tonnes all over the world of rubber and these particles are left on the road surface until the rain comes down or another vehicle comes and knocks them off and a lot of the dust and dirt you find lying beside a road is rubber particles as well as also bits of brake brake pad uh, lining uh, which has also been worn <laughs> off of the brakes and the discs on people's brake, disc brakes but um, some of that gets blown up in the air and you breathe it in but as I say the vast majority when the rain comes down gets washed into a drain and then ultimately in many cases ends up being washed into the sea thanks rob interesting question david hi good morning good morning sir go ahead speak to the naked scientist good morning dr chris my question is um why do tardigrades have such awesome superpowers and why can't humans duplicate them So the question is, why, why, do tardi, tar, why are tardigrades superhuman? For those not in the know of what a tardigrade is, this is a microscopic creature, which um, I think they're also called water bears or something like that, aren't they? Um, they're very weird-looking things. If you type tardigrade into, into your search engine of choice, you'll see why I'm saying they look very strange. And the reason that David's suggesting that they're superhuman is because they've done extraordinary things. They've been out in space. Scientists have put them into orbit and exposed them to the vacuum of space. Now, this would be enough to wipe out most organisms uh, within an instant, but these can be recovered at very high levels. Um, you know, very high proportions of the population are not killed by this experience. They can be recovered back down to Earth or wherever, and they carry on growing and living. So they're very hardy creatures, but very tiny creatures, and probably they have these abilities endowed upon them because they have come through an evolutionary process living in some really inhospitable hospitable and horrible places on earth which are selected for very profound survival abilities biochemically and metabolically in these creatures um, and scientists are very interested in them for that reason because they they may explain partly how life got started on earth they may even explain how life got to earth they also give us insights into how we have to be careful about not polluting the universe beyond the earth because when we send probes out they may well have things like bacteria and other forms of life stuck on them and it's very important that we don't accidentally seed uh, our our living rubbish into space and, and pollute some of the pristine parts of the solar system, which would make our question about how life evolved and whether it exists anywhere else much harder to solve if we mm. contaminate the environments. They look very weird, Chris. I've just actually Googled them. Jeez, like a very tiny hippopotamus. No, they wouldn't, they wouldn't win a Miss World contest, put it that way. <laughs> no. Here's a question from the SMS line. Renee wants to know the following. What happens in the nose that causes sneezing and congestion with hay fever? And how long can hay fever continue? Your nose lining is very sensitive to temperature and also to other things. There are hairs in the nose that uh, physical structures can bash into and knock those hairs around, and this triggers nerve impulses. There are also lots of very sensitive nerve endings close to the surface in the nose, and the reason they're there is because your nose needs to know what you're breathing in. Not just smells of things, but also the temperature of the gas that's going in if there are other noxious or harmful chemicals in there. And also your nose is very sensitive to bugs coming in that way, viruses, bacteria and so on. And also allergens, things you're allergic to, like hay fever. When you're having hay fever, you're breathing in pollen, which has come from grasses, it's come from flowers, it's tiny particles with lots of protein on them bobbing around in the air. When they go up your nose, they land on cells in the nose and these cells have um, receptors on them. The cells in particular that are there in, your, in the lining of your nose are called mast cells 
And these are big. They look a bit like a Second World War underwater mine. You know, those things that used to be on chains underwater with spikes sticking out of them. This is what mast cells look a bit like. And sticking out from their surface are antibodies called IgE antibodies, which are receptors for whatever the pollen is that you're breathing in and or, or other parasites and bacteria and so on. Whenever those IgE antibodies dock with the thing they recognise, they cause the mast cell to discharge lots of a chemical called histamine into the tissue. Histamine is there to protect you because it causes inflammation. It causes blood vessels to open up. It causes blood vessels to become very leaky so that cells, immune cells, can get out. And it also causes the immune system to send immune cells to that area and it excites local nerve fibres. And all of these responses lead to inflammation, and that inflammation causes a runny nose, it causes itching, and it also triggers the nerve cells that cause sneezing, so you want to start sneezing furiously. The body does this because it interprets the harmless pollen that's come in as something dangerous and harmful, as noxious rather than innocuous, and it triggers all these responses to try to flush them out. Degrassi Park, Hussey, good morning. Thank you. Uh, the Dachshund dog is uh, well known for its elongated body and long neck. Does its skeletal structure, is it the same as other dog breeds? Or has it got more vertebrae? Or Can uh, I listen on the radio? Of course you can. Thank you, Asi. Lovely question. A very interesting question. The, this is an example of selective breeding. So dogs have been with us for five to 10,000 years, we think. They were domesticated from wolves. So wolves are a dog's closest living ancestor on the earth. And we think probably that during our human evolution that there were some wolves that were more friendly than others that would have been attracted by groups of humans that would have hunted cooperatively, found some, something to, to kill, cook and eat. And the smell of that food would have attracted wolves. And from those wolves, there would have been some that began to associate with humans. And we selected the more friendly uh, uh, less wild ones from among them and have slowly bred in the traits that uh, became domestic dogs and then people concentrated the genes that made dogs have certain features in certain breeds. So for gun dogs, for example, they bred dogs which were very, very good at uh, retrieving, very, very trainable. For, for other species and traits, they went for other things. And these are all dogs. They all have the same anatomy but their anatomy in terms of the gross numbers of bones and so on, but in the same way as we get big humans and tall humans, and you could selectively breed a population of humans if you had enough time who are extraordinarily tall, they wouldn't have more bones. They would have bigger bones and bigger joints and bigger muscles. These dogs that have strange breeds, um, I don't think they've got any extra bones. I think that it's just that their bones they do have are a different shape and stature to give the dog its uh, different uh, dimensions compared to another breed. Final question from SMS, uh, last one for the week, Chris. Do smaller creatures like ants, flies, mosquitoes, etc., experience time relatively slower than larger creatures like humans? Does size affect the perception of time? I wouldn't have thought so. Um, it's certainly true that even a plant knows the time of day because plants... Even bacteria have body clocks. These are patterns of genes executed within the cell, ticking away, keeping time, because knowing what time of day it is is fundamental to survival. Because you need to know when it's going to get dark, because if you're nocturnal, that's when you need to come out and start hunting. If you're 
day-active animal, you need to go to bed because at night time it's going to get dangerous. If you're a plant, you need to make sure that you've turned off all of your energy-gathering systems from capturing energy from the sun during the day and then plan your metabolism overnight so that you don't run out of energy while you're burning food at night so that when the sun comes up the next day you can get ready to start making new food again. So everything needs to know the time and therefore it doesn't matter how big you are, whether you're a bacterium or a blue whale, you need to know the time and you need to keep time accurately. Um, And that's a reflection on the fact that we have evolved here on Earth with a roughly 24-hour day. The exception to this seem to be animals like reindeer and other animals that live in the Arctic Circle. And um, there are are animals down the south, of course, as well. Um, Those animals have a strange day because if you think about it, um, most places on the earth have a day that uh, the sun rises six, seven o'clock in the morning, goes down six, seven o'clock at night, especially at the equator, very regular. But up in the North Pole, for example, there will be six months of the year where the sun does not set. There will be another six months of the year where the sun never rises. So some animals don't use the sun to set their body clock and they don't really have a time of day clock. They, they don't really know what time of day it is, but they do know what time of year it is because they need to know when to mate. That's all we have time for. Fascinating. And uh, we'll do it again next week. I'm already looking forward to it. Thanks, everybody. See you soon. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.